Hello, and welcome to AJC Passport, brought to you by AJC, the diplomatic arm of the Jewish community. Each week, we'll chat with experts from around the world to help you better understand the week's headlines and what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. This week marks two years since the 2016 election of President Donald Trump. And so we arrive at the midterms in which Democrats riding a wave of electoral support erased a large GOP majority in the House of Representatives, winning dozens of seats across the country and seizing control of the chamber. There was a slightly different story, however, on the Senate side of the Hill, where red state Dems went down in a few key races. While there are still a few final results pending, the Democrats are expected to hold about 230 seats in the House, or about 25 more than the Republicans, while the GOP will have around 53 or 54 out of 100 senators. President Trump has declared victory, saying that the much-vaunted blue wave never arrived, and noting that in the Senate, at least, his party actually gained seats. Of course, this year's Senate map was always expected to be difficult for Democrats to defend, and the Democrats are calling these results a win for Team Blue. Joining us now to make sense of it all is famed political scientist, resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, and the author of several books, most recently, One Nation After Trump, A Guide for the Perplexed, the Disillusioned, the Desperate, and the Not Yet Deported, Norm Ornstein. Norm, thank you for joining us. Oh, it's such a pleasure. There's been a lot of debate as to whether or not this election constituted a wave election. Did the Democrats go surfing on Tuesday night? Yeah, so it's not a tidal wave, but it's uh, a lot more than a ripple. And frankly, uh, the reaction of President Trump in its aftermath, um, which we might get into a little bit more, uh, suggests that he is not at all happy with the results. And Democrats are very happy. They lost some key races, some uh, signature races, the way it was uh, framed during the campaign, but a uh, huge, from their perspective, uh, gain in the House and more significant just taking the majority, uh, and big gains in the states, some referendums that really matter. Uh, I think you'd have to say that it was a really, really, really good election for Democrats. And what do you think are the lessons that we learned from the election, particularly about you know what motivated the electorate? Uh, more anger than anything else uh, in a lot of ways. And that often is what happens in our midterm contests. Uh, you know, the, the losses given the national vote might have been much greater, except for the tribalism that we have. You know, uh, what generally happens in a midterm contest is the president's partisans are disillusioned, uh, a little bit demoralized. It didn't go exactly as they felt, and they stay home in larger numbers. And the uh, party that's not in the presidency really uh, finds that it's worse than they could have imagined, and they turn out. The turnout was incredible this time. But we also saw the tribal reaction emerge uh, in a lot of places where Republicans held seats or won Senate seats that otherwise wouldn't have happened in a typical midterm. Uh, 
but you know, I think unhappiness with the status quo and unhappiness, especially with the Trump administration, was a motivator for Democrats to turn out in large numbers, younger voters more than they usually do. And also for, uh, as we saw, it's now become a little bit stereotypical, but there's a lot of truth to it, a lot of suburban women. And that's where the Democrats made their substantial gains in the House was in districts with significant uh, suburbs with educated suburban women. You said that anger was a motivator, and and I think we all kind of noticed that. But it did seem like, at least in the past couple of weeks, there was pretty good message discipline with Democratic campaigns talking about health care and defending health care and Republican campaigns talking about, you know, trying to tout the, the booming economy. Do you feel like the campaigns themselves were feeding into this anger or was that just out there in the populace? Um, I would uh, uh, take slight issue with only one element of what you said. There were certainly Republican candidates who were touting the economy, uh, but uh, not mentioning almost at all the tax cuts. But what dominated their campaigns was less what they were saying and more what the president was saying. Mm -hmm. And we know that Paul Ryan, the Speaker of the House, kept calling Trump and saying, please focus on the economy. That's where we should have our strength. And he kept coming back to this uh, faux outrage over a caravan that now has completely dropped from the uh, Fox News feed or from any of the front pages. It was sort of manufactured as an issue to try and feed the anger of his base, which he thought would get them out in larger numbers. And that may have worked. Uh, Certainly, it may have worked in uh, some of these red states um, like uh, Indiana, North Dakota. It may have helped some in uh, governor's races in Georgia and Florida. Uh, But uh, you're right on the other side. Uh, Democrats did focus on health care. And health care became a really dominant issue for them because it is a dominant issue for large numbers of Americans who feel really unsettled about what's going to happen to their health insurance or their ability to pay. Right. Indiana and North Dakota weren't particularly close races. So I don't know how much that would have factored in, but Georgia and Florida certainly were. And that brings me to something that I've been kind of mulling over since election night, which is that there was this internal conversation on the left or debate maybe about whether the right type of candidate to win in a purple or even red state for the Democrats is someone who's your kind of quintessential moderate, will vote with the president every now and then, your your Joe Manchin, Democratic senator from West Virginia, for example, or whether they wanted to go with these kind of expand the electorate candidates, the people who they felt would turn out voters who ordinarily don't vote. And that is the kind of brand that was applied to Andrew Gillum, gubernatorial candidate in Florida, to Stacey Abrams, gubernatorial candidate in Georgia, to to Ben Jealous, who who I think was always a long shot in the face of, uh, yeah. of Maryland Governor Hogan's popularity in Maryland, and to Beto O'Rourke, the senatorial candidate in Texas. All of those people lost. To be very precise, the Abrams-Kemp contest in Georgia is not yet called. We don't know exactly what will happen there. But certainly none of those candidates were wild successes, and they might have gone 0 for 4. Do you think we learned something about, you know, are are there 2020 implications for that, for the way that this will impact the discourse of candidate quality going forward among Democrats? 
Yeah, I do think that there are some uh, lessons going forward. You know, I found it kind of amusing during the course of the campaign because so much of the media focused on Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, who was a a Bernie Sanders uh, acolyte, identifies as a Democratic Socialist, and beat a very progressive uh, member of Congress in a district in New York as the wave of the future for Democrats. Uh, But the fact is, she is going to find not that many uh, allies to a lot of these causes in Inside Congress, the House races that were won in marginal districts or districts that uh, were more red uh, tended to be more pragmatic progressives. Uh, you know, there are going to be some who will fit the old characteristic name of blue dog. Um, there are certainly moderates, but they're more center left people than they are left of center. Uh, I'm not sure that Beto O'Rourke fits in the same category as Andrew Gillum or Stacey Abrams, a little bit uh, more to the pragmatic side. But I do think that this is going to have a major impact on the mindset of Democrats going forward with a caveat. You know, who knows what the zeitgeist is going to be a year from now when we really begin to start uh, the primary process. And if it's anger, 20 Democratic candidates, we may find something very different than what we see now. But I think the meme that we would have seen if there had been a sweep by all of these candidates of the left, that the way to win is not to try to appeal to the center, but to excite your own base, that just doesn't have much traction anymore. Having said that, um, one of the observations that I made on election eve, and I've made a couple of times since, is even though he lost, Beto O'Rourke actually now, ironically, may be better positioned as a candidate in 2020 because he did show charisma, really captured excitement of an awful lot of people nationwide, built an enormous fundraising base, and now doesn't have to be saddled with being a meaningless minority figure in the Senate. So Democrats are going to be searching for somebody who uh, hits that sweet spot. I don't think it's any more likely, in fact, will be less likely that it's going to be uh, somebody from the Bernie Sanders wing of the party. Looking forward now to the incoming Congress, will Nancy Pelosi reclaim the gavel as Speaker of the House? You know, some of the newer incoming freshman class, I think there's something like 90 new congressmen coming in, have said, even the Dems, that is, have said, you know, we're not going to vote for her. And and that was kind of like an important chip for them to play in a, a red leaning district. So do you think that Pelosi is back in as Speaker? And what are the implications of that? Uh, I think uh, almost certainly Pelosi will end up as speaker. There may be a few bumps uh, in the road along the way. Um, Some of the candidates did pledge that they wouldn't support her. I think uh, she may end up saying that she'll just serve one more term. What Democrats are beginning to realize now um, uh, more, and, you know, the fact that uh, they won a huge victory while she was the leader, I think, actually helps as well. But when she was speaker back in the first two years of Obama, she was probably the strongest and most impressive speaker in modern times. Hmm. Uh, the qualities you're looking for in a speaker... When, when to modern times? This is a, a post-Sam Rayburn era, I would imagine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly so. Um, you know, Pelosi's weakness is she's not great on television. And there's no question she has been used by Republicans as a kind of devil figure in a rallying cry. Although if she weren't there, they'd find somebody else. 
But what you need to do as speaker is not be the spokesman for the party on television. You need to be able to pull your troops together, know what the strengths and weaknesses of each of the members are in their districts, protect them when it comes to difficult votes, except when you really need to do something, know who to push hard, who to sweet talk, um, but also be the toughest negotiator when it comes to dealing with whoever the leader uh, Republicans choose in the House may be, perhaps Kevin McCarthy or... Uh, Jim Jordan. You know, shockingly, Jim Jordan, um, to deal with Mitch McConnell and then to deal with Donald Trump. And the fact is, if you start to look at the younger members where there's an enormous array of talent, uh, it's not clear that any of them are ready for those particular tasks. Grooming somebody to do that, assuming she is speaker, is going to be a really important part of it because, you know, let's face it, the top three leaders uh, have an average age pushing 80. Right, right. I mean, her two deputies, Steny Hoyer and Jim Clyburn, are 79 and, and 78. And she's also, I think, 78. Do you think that we see Hoyer or Clyburn end up moved aside and replaced with some of the younger faces of the party? It wouldn't surprise me that there'll be a little bit of change below that top level. They're both popular members. Steny is uh, very popular among his colleagues. But I find it hard to believe that we aren't going to see some of the younger, talented members, including women, including minorities, um, but also including you know signature figures like Eric Swalwell, uh, Joe Kennedy, mm-hmm. uh, who's extraordinarily impressive, begin to take more high-profile roles. So I'm expecting that we're going to see an expanded leadership team um, and maybe a little bit of change just below the top level. There was a great deal of lamenting going on in the run-up to the election about the death of civility in politics. We touched on this a little bit before around the messaging and the campaign, uh, but is that a problem that exists on both sides of the political spectrum? Who's to blame for creating the cesspool that we find ourselves in? Uh, you know, I've uh, uh, my colleague Tom Mann and I wrote a book that got quite a bit of attention in 2012 called It's Even Worse Than It Looks, in which we said that the, there was polarization, of course, but it was asymmetric. And I also think while you can find uh, harsh statements, uncivil things, uh, bombastic rhetoric on both sides, it's not equal. And the kind of rhetoric that you see coming from the top, from the president of the United States, the role model for the nation, including not just going after people in government, including in his bizarre press conference, uh, sliming some of his own members who lost, and they lost because he was a burden around their neck. But, you know, uh, going after uh, CNN, uh, using the term enemy of the people, which he does on an almost daily basis. um, And we have to keep in mind that that's a term originated by Stalin to justify his uh, purges and mass deaths and banned by Khrushchev when he became the head of the Soviet Union because it was too dangerous. Um, The kinds of things that we're seeing there, but also uh, on talk radio, cable news and elsewhere, um, there's a tilt in one direction. Uh, When you refer to neo-Nazi marchers in Charlottesville chanting, Jews will not replace us as very fine people, um, that sends a signal that, you know, incivility, harsh rhetoric is okay. I suppose now is as good a time as any for me to remind our listeners that AJC is a 501c3 not-for-profit organization that neither endorses nor opposes candidates for elective office. That being said, and kind of thinking forward again, this kind of divided government seems certain to guarantee legislative gridlock, right? Is our government going to accomplish anything in the next two years? 
So it's not as if we had a spate of legislative activity uh, <laughs> over the past two years. Uh, we got this huge tax cut, but very little else. Uh, I don't expect a lot of action uh, in the next two years, of course, but with a caveat. The Democrats want to have a positive agenda to put forward and have something to be able to run on in 2020. Trump would love to have something that shows he can be a bipartisan and cut a deal and have a victory dance in the uh, Rose Garden. So I don't rule out a major infrastructure bill. But the idea that we're going to really begin to grapple in Congress, in government, in Washington with the huge issues we face, whether it's climate or the rapid technological change uh, that means that jobs come and go in a competitive global economy and you've got to be adaptable, the tremendous differences in economic vibrancy between the urban areas and the more rural and suburban ones, the opioid crisis, the health care issue, which is in no way resolved and is going to continue to have uh, turmoil out there, or even some of these larger questions of foreign policy, what we do with our alliances uh, and uh, and, uh, how we are going to resolve uh, the enormous clashes that we see in the worldview of Donald Trump and many of those in Congress, that along with a panoply of other issues that are of great importance, it's hard to see them being resolved. This is much more likely to be two years of subpoenas and investigations and a lot of aggressive oversight. I hope it will be constructive oversight. And then, of course, when you look at what uh, President Trump said at his pretty bizarre press conference yesterday, that if Democrats do pursue this, it will be warfare. That's not conducive to a lot of uh, legislative action either. Now, that's in Washington, but there's also government out in the states. And what's been really interesting about Donald Trump's presidency is that it's caused the Democrats, who have been accused of being, you know, this party of executive overreach of, you know, judicial activism, to rediscover federalism and to embrace what can be accomplished at the state level. And on the other side of the proverbial aisle, there are the three most popular or at least three of the four most popular governors in the country are Republicans all up and down the eastern seaboard. So, you know, do you think that we're going to see the exciting progress uh, in our country take place at the state level? You know, you've you've raised an interesting point in a a few ways. Um, I actually wrote a little something uh, a few weeks ago for our AEI uh, blog on uh, the anomaly that in this highly tribal and partisan era, we had in two of the bluest states in the nation, Massachusetts and Maryland, two Republican governors who were going to win handily. Uh, as they did. Um, They're pragmatists. They are more than willing to find ways to compromise with what are democratic legislatures. They're smart and basically very moderate people. The problem that they have is, and I noticed in the Washington Post today, there was a story about Larry Hogan, the governor of Maryland, thinking about larger ambitions. But they represent a Republican Party that is uh, a thing of the past. Uh, The chances that they could emerge in a party that is now Donald Trump's party as moderates, I think, is unfortunately almost laughable. The fact is even very, very strong conservatives who were not willing to stand with Trump, like Jeff Flake, are being pretty much drummed out of the party. Now, having said that, beyond states like Maryland and Massachusetts, where they're finding bipartisan ways to govern, Democrats had a very good night on Tuesday at the state level. They won a significant number of governorships and six legislative chambers 
years, they now have the trifecta, both houses and the governorship, in a significant number of states. We have only one state, the first time in, I think, 100 years, that has a split legislature, ironically, in my native blue state of Minnesota. And in other states where you have a legislature but a governor of the other party, there's a better chance that they can find ways to work together. And that's going to be true even in places like North Carolina, where the Republican legislature lost its supermajority. So the governor can veto things, and that forces at least some compromise. More generally, I believe, you know, there's a really interesting and good book by James Fallows and Deborah Fallows, uh, Fallows being at the Atlantic, where they took their small plane and went all around the country to smaller cities, places like Duluth, Minnesota, and found that these national issues and all of this uh, craziness that we see in Washington and in national politics was sort of not anything they were focusing on. They were finding ways in their communities to work together and to make things happen. And that is a very heartening sign, along with what we've seen uh, in the awakening of a civil society, that our former government may be at a point of an existential crisis, and we better all measure up and make sure that we can bring some level of unity, move away from some of the racial and other kinds of divisions that can split a society completely in two. Listeners to AJC Passport will doubtless be wondering what the elections mean for the U.S.-Israel relationship and also what this time of rising polarization means for American Jews here in this country. What should we expect? That's a really tough uh, question to answer. Of course, Israel is going through its own uh, political turmoil. Here, we are awaiting the various shoes to drop from the investigations of the president and his family. Um, there, we already have family members for Prime Minister Netanyahu indicted and several investigations that could lead to an indictment ahead. Uh, some turmoil inside government that flows from that. But along with that, what we've seen, of course, is a very, very different reaction, I think, on both sides to the relationship between the two countries. Bibi Netanyahu, in a more overt way than I think we've ever seen with an Israeli prime minister, took sides in American politics and has been overtly supportive of Donald Trump and the Republican Party. And that runs the risk, and it's a significant risk, I believe, of making Israel a partisan issue, which is something that we have long avoided. And we're starting to see that play out a little bit more in the United States. And we have to remember, a lot of these new members and the young members moving in don't have that history of the strong and deep relationship between the countries. They are seeing things through a different prism. And while I don't think it's going to, in the short run, alter the deep and steadfast support that Americans have for Israel or American politicians have for Israel, there's going to be some erosion along the way. And it's a challenge, I think, a, a very deep challenge. And we have a challenge as well because, of course, what we're seeing is uh, the ultra-religious influence in Israel has caused many reform and even conservative congregations to wonder if we're being written out of the religion in a sense. And that itself may cause some erosion in support and a younger generation that's more secular. And if we end up 
you know, what we're seeing outside of Judaism is this strong divide between the Protestant evangelical community and the other denominations in Christianity. Uh, we're going to see a similar kind of divide between the Orthodox and ultra-Orthodox community and the rest of American Jews. And if that happens and that gets played out the way it could get played out, it's not good for any of us, and it's certainly not good for the future of Israel. When I look at that, along with what we're seeing in Europe and the you know, dreaded possibility of an anti-Semite, an open anti-Semite, uh, Jeremy Corbyn becoming uh, the uh, prime minister of Great Britain, with uh, what will not far off be the departure of Angela Merkel from Germany, with the rise of a broader anti-Israel attitude and anti-Semitism in Europe, I don't think we can turn away from the challenges that we face trying to bind our own community together, but also work beyond what uh, political figures are doing for their own purposes that may not have the eye on the larger and longer term ball. So I, I think we have a real challenge and AJC is a critical, critical part of helping us from inching towards catastrophe. And we will continue that hard work in the many months and years to come. Norm, thank you so much for joining us. A pleasure. Now it's time for our closing segment, Good for the Jews, where each week I share one final thought about a recent development in the world and try to answer that age-old question. Is it good for the Jews? Canada. Good for the Jews? In June 1939, a steamliner called the St. Louis waited off the coast of North America. Its precious cargo consisted of 907 Jewish refugees fleeing Nazi Germany. Its intended destination, Havana, Cuba, had already refused to allow all but a tiny handful of the passengers to depart. And so almost 1,000 people turned their eyes and their prayers to the United States and then, ultimately, to the port in Halifax, Canada. But safe harbor was denied, and these refugees were sent back to Europe, a continent already aflame. More than a quarter of them were ultimately murdered in the Holocaust. This week, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau apologized to the victims of Nazi genocide and of Canadian indifference. He said, we apologize to the mothers and fathers whose children we did not save, to the daughters and sons whose parents we did not help. We refused to help them when we could have. We contributed to sealing the cruel fates of far too many at places like Auschwitz, Treblinka, and Belzich. We failed them, and for that, we are sorry. Canada could have been a safe haven for nearly a thousand precious souls in 1939, and it refused that opportunity. Its willingness today to recognize that mistake, to apologize, and to make up for it by welcoming contemporary refugees, well, that is good for the Jews. As we recorded on Thursday morning, we learned that Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, whose Hanukkah scrunchie we profiled here on AJC Passport just two weeks ago, broke three ribs in a fall. To you, Justice Ginsburg, we say... May you make a full and speedy recovery. Your country needs you. You can subscribe to AJC Passport on iTunes or on Stitcher. 
follow us on SoundCloud, or learn more at AJC.org passport. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at passport at AJC.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. This episode is brought to you by AJC, the American Jewish Committee. Our producer is Alex Zeldin. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of AJC Passport.